You are listening to episode 297 on University of Adversity. And I tried to climb down and I couldn't climb down. I started to like, you know, lose it. So I'd go back, try to find the point where I was, couldn't quite grab that. And then try to make a lunge for this overhang to grab it and pull myself up over the top. But I ended up falling all the way to the bottom. So it was like about uh, 20 meters. So that's like, you know, 60 feet or whatever. Hit the bottom, uh, landed on my left leg, shattered my femur. It was like massive compound fracture. So the bone popped out the side, cut through all the muscle and skin. And I've got like a 10 inch scar on my left leg where the bone came out, pulled all the skin up. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What's up, fam? Welcome back to the show. We got a special guest today for you. He is the CEO and co-founder of Saltar Healing Center in Costa Rica that I just had the pleasure of visiting and experiencing the powerful medicine called ayahuasca. Now I know if you guys haven't already, go check out the solo episode I did that walks you through my entire journey from night from the first night to the fourth night and you'll get an understanding of how powerful this medicine is and how it's definitely not for everybody, definitely for the right people if you feel called to it. So my guest today, his name is Dan Cleland. He's the host of the Dan Cleland podcast. And as I said, the CEO and founder of Saltara, co-founder of Saltara. This episode, we got into Dan's story. He gave us the full background story of how he got to the place where he is today, how he created Saltara. I'm just so grateful for that healing center, Saltara, what it's been able to do for me. It brought me a reason to come to Costa Rica and which is completely changed my life. So I wanted to do everything I can to share value and help share that with all of you listeners, all you guys, that maybe if you feel called to the medicine, this would be a great spot for you. So that's enough for me. If you guys haven't already and you're just tuning in, please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this, or if you prefer to watch it on YouTube, go over there and watch it on YouTube, subscribe there. Dan Cleland coming right up. Here we go. Dan, welcome to the show, brother. Super excited to have you on, man. After the experience I had, brother. <laughs> Thanks, Lance. I appreciate it, man. And it was uh, interesting. We, we ran into each other twice in Hako this past weekend, just serendipitously. Yeah. So yeah, yeah good to catch up. <sighs> yeah, dude. So just to start this off, the container that you guys have built at Saltara is fucking incredible. And from, from start to finish, everything that I went through was just so beautiful. And you guys, I just want to acknowledge that, how great of an operation you guys got. Your whole team, like the, everything around it is just amazing. So thank you, honestly. Thank you so much for holding such a great space for us. I appreciate that, man. And, you know, <clears throat> I played my small part in that large equation. But, yeah. uh, you know, there's... A lot of blood, sweat, and tears that have gone into that over the years. As you met, you know, it's, it's taken us about three years to really curate and cultivate this amazing team that we've got. And it's really, they're the backbone of the whole operation. Yeah, that's, dude, like the, just the flow of everything and like your, the team and just from 
the maestros and everything. It was just so powerful. And where I would love to start this off is, you know, even myself, I've got to kind of know you where you are now. You know, you got a dope podcast as well that I highly recommend everybody check out. You got some amazing people on there. But what I love to get into is the story of how all this came to be, right? I know you grew up, you're from Canada, right? You grew up in Canada. We're both Canadians yeah. in Costa Rica right now. So where I want to start is what was it like for a young Dan growing up and what are some of the biggest struggles or key moments that impacted your life on where you are today? Well, man, um, it's, uh, I guess it, it, it's, it's kind of a long story. Um, and I've been asked this before and I, the best way to answer it is to kind of weave it together because there's like basically, uh, two tracks that, that brought me to be in the position to build this up. So I've been in the ayahuasca field for about 10 years. Right. And, um, what brought me there was kind of a combination of my interest in traveling and then also personal struggles that I had, which, which brought me into the actual medicine. So, um, so growing up in Canada, you know, I grew up in a small town, 5,000 people, very, very kind of uneventful, boring, rural Canadian community, about two hours outside of Toronto, surrounded by farms and very basically, you know, not super, not super revolutionary or ambitious individuals in the town. You know, a lot of like, a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs, um, a lot of people kind of going to work in the power plants next door, you know, or like going into the trades or, or what have you. Not really, not a lot of people at that time, you know, in the early 2000s, late 90s, like actually getting out and doing a lot in the world. You know, the internet wasn't super developed. People were walking around with iPhones and Google Maps and all that kind of stuff. Travel was a little bit more of an, of an anomaly than a norm. So, um, you know, I went, through, I went through high school in my small town of Walkerton, went to college in uh, London, Ontario, and just basically went through, in four years, went through four different unexciting programs that didn't graduate from anything. It was like technical programs, electrical, uh, electronics, computer, electrician, stuff like that. Nothing that really floated my boat, so to speak. Um, and uh, I ended up getting into sales. So I started working sales in, uh, in London, Ontario after college. My first job outside of college just got into sales, which I could have gotten without any college degree whatsoever. Then I, I ended up moving out to Calgary and, and just continuing with this particular sales job that I had. And when I was about 25, I started to get really bored. I started to get like super like, okay, man, I, I graduated college or not graduate, I finished college. I had a hell of a time partying in college and, you know, just doing that. Like I really milked that for all it was worth. And, um, but then kind of, you know, 25 and like your, you know, quarter life crisis kind of thing. Like, what do you get? You know, you're starting to get older. The party days seem to be behind you. And, um, then it starts to look like, all right, well, now that it looks like the rest of my life is just work. And then 
at, at that same point, you know, being that I came from a more traditional place, it was like some of my friends at 25 are getting married and having kids. And then, you know, pressure from the parents to settle down, have kids and follow the traditional path. And I just wasn't into it, man. I was just bored and I wanted some adventure. I, uh, I'd always been somewhat adventurous. So I want some adventure and, um, you know, that kind of intersected with this, uh, with this romantic failure that I had with this one woman from Europe who, who had come to Canada on exchange to my small town. And she was like this exotic thing that I was just like infatuated with and tried to chase her for all those years till I was 25. Uh, and, uh, you know, she had, she'd come over again and she was living with us in Calgary with me and a group of friends, but just wasn't interested in me. And, and I took part of my like kind of small town mind as a reason why she was not interested in me. Like she left Calgary to go work for the UN, you know, and she had like learned different languages and she's traveled all over the world, like visited 30 countries or whatever. So I felt like, um, pretty sad about that. And also that I wanted adventure, but in a, in, a, in a way it was kind of to impress this, this girl to like go and start traveling and be this guy. So, um, when I was 25, I made a trip to Brazil, a, a six week uh, journey to Brazil, you know, and before the ages of, of iPhones and stuff like that, I, I, you know, printed off or like I bought a big map and like planned out my trip using guidebooks and bought some CD-ROMs with Portuguese, like learning Portuguese. And um, I made this trip to Brazil, took six weeks off work. And it, it just like opened me up to the possibilities of world travel. And like, it was just the best time, met people from around the world who thought differently. And, um, you know, I learned some Portuguese. I fell in love once a week there, you know, with <laughs> yeah. different girls in each different place that I was in. Um, and it was, yeah, I worked in a rooftop uh, patio bar in this, this backpacker hostel in Copacabana, shaking up caipirinhas, you know, waking up every day and then the afternoon, starting work at the bar until four, work until 11 and then party until like four or five in the morning. So it, it kind of just like ignited this new zest in, uh, for life in me. So then I got back to Calgary in the middle of the winter in January there. And uh, by the way, I spent Christmas and New Year's in Brazil that year. So it was the first time I've been out of Canada for Christmas and on the beach. It was just like unfathomable. Yeah. Right. And uh, <clears throat> so I get uh, I get back to Calgary. It's freezing cold. I'm depressed because I just like I just had this taste of like what life could be. And then I go back to what life was and yeah. this boring grind of, with hanging out with all the same people who thought the same way that, uh, you know, cause I was living with a bunch of buddies from my hometown in Calgary. Mm -hmm. So it was just like Walkerton transplanted to Calgary doing the same shit. I, I, that, that kind of marked a turning point in my career path. I, I started obsessing about getting back to Brazil and I ended up searching out a job in tourism, working for a company called G adventures as a tour leader um, so they work all over the world, but I was interested in Latin America. So I, I applied, I got the job and, uh, I, I went down to work for them. They trained me in Guatemala and then sent me to Costa Rica to work. So I was running, uh, uh, trips in Costa Rica and Panama, like small group, uh, adventures ranging from like nine to 15 days. 
um, <clears throat> around Panama and Costa Rica. But my, my original intention was to get back to Brazil. So uh, after I had earned some experience working in the easier countries, you know, Costa Rica is pretty easy to travel in. Then they, they transferred me by request down to South America, uh, running this massive 42-day uh, trip from through Venezuela, all down into the northern Brazilian Amazon, down the whole Amazon River, and oh. down the whole coast of Brazil. Ended up getting back down to Rio uh, the next year for Carnival. So I went back to Rio. I got you know back to the same hostel that I used to work in and met some met up with some of the same people and kind of accomplished a big goal. And then I ended up working for this company for, you know, maybe uh, another year or something like that. And after I kind of, you know, got my fill of that lifestyle, I, uh, I went back to Canada in, in the interest of upgrading my education because I really wanted to do something. When I was down there in Brazil, I saw a lot of places that I had assumed would be like paradisical, but were like contaminated with, you know, plastic garbage from the ocean or just poverty and social problems and pollution and kind of social inequality and stuff like that. So um, I was a little bit shocked and I, and I always kind of been oriented toward nature and the environment and stuff like that growing up around nature all my life. So I wanted to go back and do something um, powerful with my life. So I go back to Canada. I try to get into university to this program called natural resources conservation. And my marks were fucking terrible from high school and from college. Like I was a heavy partier, barely went to class or I went to class drunk or high, you know, like, um, and so my marks were shit. I, I switched from programs, so I didn't graduate anything. And so when I applied to university, I couldn't get in. Um, but they said, you know, if I go back and like redo a couple of my high school programs and, and take, some university level courses at like a college, which is kind of a step lower than university in Canada. Um, then, uh, then perhaps they would let me in if I improve my academic record. So that's what I did. I go back, I, I go to a different college and take these university transfer courses at 27 years old, redo grade 11 English and grade 12 math. Um, and, and really apply myself and really work hard. So I spent a year at Okanagan College in, uh, excuse me, uh, Kelowna, British Columbia. The university I wanted to get into, it's at UBC in Vancouver. And um, so I worked hard. I got really good marks, well, decent marks, like 85s and 90s and stuff like that. Um, and so I was kind of well on my way to like my goal. And then uh, one of my environmental issues teachers was running a, a field trip to, to Vanuatu and Australia at the end of that year and bringing a group of like students from this environmental issues course. And I was like, I just couldn't pass up the adventure. So, uh, and it, they were offering credits as well. So like I could borrow money, like a student loan and then apply it towards that program and then go and do this month-long field trip in Australia and get credits but um yeah I uh as I was there on my way there I applied for uh a university in Australia thinking like this is kind of a stupid reason but a psychic once told my sister 
I fucking hate psychics. A psychic once told my sister that I was going to go and like that I was going to move to Australia and fall in love with this super beautiful woman and shit like that. <laughs> and so like I had this in the back of my mind when, when the opportunity to do this came up. So I go there and I'm like, Hmm, I wonder if, you know, mm. and, um, and so I applied for university before I left with these new marks that I got. Right. And I go there and, um, I'm with the students we do our field trip. And then at the end of the field trip, we had like three days in Brisbane. And, uh, and so I, I'm like, you know, rapidly trying to calculate the university accepted me. So I'm in Brisbane, in Brisbane, I've got three days there. The university accepted me and I'm like deciding, okay, um, do I stay here and go to university here or do I go back to Canada? That was right in 2000, like nine or something. And, um, you know, but previous to that, my dad was kind of, uh, helping me out with a bit of the tuition costs. Um, but you know, he had just retired and invested his whole pension into the, into the markets. And in 2008, 2009, he lost a massive chunk of his pension. Mm -hmm. So then he's like, dude, sorry, I can't help you anymore. Uh, with your school, if you want to stay in Australia and study, you're going to have to do it yourself. You're going to have to, you know, get a job and work through it, figure it out. So I'm there, I'm there for three days and I'm like, okay, if I stay here, I got to get a job. Um, my goal was still to do education, but like I needed to fund it myself. So I go out looking for a job. I find this door to door sales job in the newspaper. I go and apply and like try out. Turns out my trainer there, super fucking hot Australian chick who like, I immediately was like, this is the one the psychic was telling my <laughs> sister about. So I, I stay right. The students go back. I don't even call the airline to reschedule my flight. I just like, let it go. So I'm in Australia. I start working this door to door sales job. After about the first week, it turns out that this chick wants nothing to do with me um, in a romantic sense. Right. And like the first few days of this job, you know, when you're getting all the like startup bonuses and stuff like that, you know, you go make four sales and you get paid double. Like, yeah, I was making, you know, 250 bucks a day or something like that, which at that time was like in cash in hand. It was like, okay, that's decent. If I do this, you know, I can, I can maybe fund my, uh, my, my studies. But after like, you know, a week or two, it, you know, the, the, the pay started to go down. I started to rethink my decision and then you know after a month or two of doing that job i'm barely making ends meet i'm like i'm barely paying the rent i'm not you know i'm not i'm starting to see that that the program i was planning to do is not going to happen so i end up having to defer the program once and um you know keep working i try to get a different job like a more professional job and um at that time, because of the recent market crash, uh, the, the economy is very protectionistic toward Australia and New Zealand residents. And I was just on a working holiday visa. So the, every job posting said Australia and New Zealand residents only. Um, so I was just constantly failing at getting a professional job. And, you know, I, I just, I got to a point of desperation. So I actually fabricated a visa. Like I looked up the different visa options and I made like a document that said I had a de facto visa and I was involved in this relationship for two years with an Australian woman and all this kind of shit. So then I started to get interviews for jobs. And then I finally got like a decent job. But at that time I had already 
deferred my, my uh, school program once. And like, so I go and start this job. It was another sales job selling solar panels, but they gave me a car, a base salary, plus commission, a phone, computer. But about three weeks into that job, um, I go out drinking with my buddy. We went to a, a concert that was supposed to be on, but we, when we got there, it was like apparently rescheduled to the next night. So we kind of like, all right, what do you want to do? Ah, whatever, let's just go home. And uh, so I go home, grab a joint, head down to the park. And at this park, it's called uh, Kangaroo Point on the, on the Brisbane River in South Bank Park. And there's this big cliff there that's like, uh, it's about, you know, 20, 25 meters high or so. You'd see people there during the day climbing it with ropes and helmets and spotters and all this stuff, right? Um, like a recreational activity, people would rent the gear and people would go and climb it. So I'm down there. Um, it's about, you know, it's a little after midnight and um, was drinking fairly significantly earlier in the night. And then I, I, I smoked a, a little joint and then I go to this cliff and I, I just like go to check it out. Right. And I kind of start climbing up a little bit, then just keep going because it felt kind of easy. And then, so I keep going, keep going, keep going. And I'm like, I get about, you know, halfway and I'm like, well, fuck it. I might as well go to the top. So I try climbing to the top and I like get up to the top. And then there's this one point, like about two meters from the top where I like, there's like an overhang mm. and I just like, I, I couldn't get around it. And so I'm still in my bar clothes, you know, dress shoes. So they're like slipping on the rocks and it's dark. I can't see below me. Um, and I start to panic and I tried to climb down and I couldn't climb down. I started to like, you know, lose it. So I'd go back, try to find the point where I was, couldn't quite grab that. And then try to make a lunge for this overhang to, to grab it and pull myself up over the top. But I ended up falling all the way to the bottom. So it was like about uh, 20 meters. So that's like, you know, 60 feet or whatever. And um, hit the bottom, uh, landed on my left leg shattered my femur the it was like massive compound fracture so the bone popped out the side cut through all the muscle and skin and i've got like a 10 inch scar on my left leg where the bone came out pulled all the skin up and then also broke my pelvis in half so wow. i was in rough shape and uh and then you know ended up getting an ambulance to the hospital there i'm in the hospital you know all drugged up from the, from whatever they gave me they cut my pants off you know they they I was in like rough shape, you know, it took me about a week of uh, sitting in the hospital before they did surgery on me. So I had like this big apparatus, like screwed into my bones, holding me in place, was on tranquilizers of morphine drip, just like laying in a hospital bed, you know, couldn't shit myself, had a catheter in my, in my, in my dick. And um, then they operated on me. They, they put titanium from knee to hip and then they put a plate across my uh, pelvis, but I still had to spend like another month of recovery in the hospital. I ended up spending about 40 days in the hospital there. And um, so I was basically uh, just, you know, totally kind of a write-off at that point. I was, I think 28 years old. Um, you know, I, obviously that was just before the second start date of the university. So I was in no better position to do university. So I had to defer the university again. And um, uh, fortunately I was able to keep the job. So I kept kind of doing sales calls from the hospital bed 
Uh, but still was just like, what the fuck did I do? Like I totally yeah. went off track with just like, like a mess, you know? And then I, you know, was in the hospital, um, popping Oxycontins and, uh, you know, I had some nerve damage. So like, I couldn't feel, uh, I couldn't feel my, my genitals either. And the doctors didn't know if that would ever come back because I had a bunch of nerve damage and that's really unpredictable. Wow. You know, like I couldn't, I couldn't shit by myself. I had to have nurses like help me shit and wipe my ass. It's a real mess. <laughs> Um, so, um, I realized at that point that I needed some help. Like I was just not like, I was not in a good space. I was not doing well. And so I, that's when I kind of, I, I started to really investigate ayahuasca. That was in, uh, you know, late 2009, early 2010. And, um, and it was pretty that, that time it was pretty like, it wasn't talked about that much. Right. right? Yeah. It was very low key. I don't yeah. think even like, you know, Aubrey had not started talking about it. Joe Rogan had not started talking about it. Um, there was basically one website called reality sandwich, which no longer exists. Um, Daniel Pinchback was writing about it in his book, which I read in 2008. So that's how I became familiarized with it. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, like Chris Killam was into it. Dennis McKenna was into it a little bit. And um, so it was starting to emerge. And, and so I, you know, I got into it at that point. And, and uh, yeah, basically that was, the, that was the entry. That was how I got into travel. And that was the entry point into ayahuasca. So then, you know, I, I, made, I made one trip to Peru on my way. I, I quit in Australia. I was like, you know, fuck this. I got out of the hospital. It took me about four months to be able to start walking again. And um, I kept doing that solar job. But again, I wasn't there to work a sales job. I was there to further my education, right? Mm. So I ended up quitting Australia, going back to Canada. On the way back, I went down to Peru and tried to get involved with ayahuasca there at a retreat Dennis McKenna was doing. But um, that didn't work out as planned. Ended up getting really messed up in Cusco. I got like, I got robbed. I got food poisoning. Um, and, um, and I ended up having to go back to Canada, you know, just kind of tail between my legs, just a fucking physical mess, uh, emotional mess, psychological mess. And, uh, you know, broke, no money at all, like completely broke. Um, and, um, Anyways, but on that trip to Peru, I met a dude who then, who was involved with ayahuasca and he invited me to do ceremony in the States later that year. So I ended up going down to New Mexico for my actual first ceremony. Mm. And um, so in, in August of 2010, I did my first ceremony and, you know, it was luckily very, very powerful. And I, I only did one ceremony that weekend. So fortunately that it was the big, heavy, like massive one that like just totally showed me everything I needed to know about the medicine, like oh, wow. about the power of the medicine. And that just got me started up on this path. And I was like, wow, this is just the most incredible thing I've ever done. So, um, so, you know, I started talking about it publicly. I started, you know, telling everybody I knew that I think they should drink ayahuasca too. And uh, so that kind of, you know, people in my close circle who knew that I was already big into travel and tourism and like adventures and going down to South America and stuff like that. Then they started seeing me get into ayahuasca, you know? Mm. So like the, the Facebook, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the hotmail contacts and stuff like that. Um, I didn't have a ton of contacts, but the people I did know all knew about it. Cause I was just very open and public about it. 
Did you get a lot of backlash from that? I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Got, got a fair amount. You know, a lot, my, my dad hated it. Um, my, uh, my aunts and uncles thought I was just some, some loose cannon druggie who's like, Mm -hmm. you know, down in the jungle taking crazy drugs and like they just thought everyone thought I was just a lost cause. Right. But, um, actually what happened after I started drinking medicine was that I started to treat myself a lot better. And I started to, to get a lot more diligent about improving my own life and and being Mm. a lot more disciplined, you know, I scaled back heavy on, on like alcohol and uh, drugs and stuff like that. I started gaining interest in entrepreneurship and started reading different types of books and, and trying to figure out, you know, a different, a different way of life. And like, I was really feeling a lot of pressure kind of going on to my, my 30th year. Like, you know, how old are you Lance? I'm 37. 30. Holy shit. You look a lot younger, bro. Thanks bro. How old are you? (laughs) you? 39. Okay. Yeah. I'll be 40 this year. Well, you look good, uh, man. I would have, I would have, I would have pegged you for under 30, but anyway, thank you, bro. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Well, you know what it's like, you know, when you're kind of getting into your thirties and like you start to feel the judgment of the world on you. Right. Especially like women. It's like, does this guy, the first thing to ask is, you know, when you're 30 years old, do you have your shit together? Totally. Right. So, um, so anyways, I was, I was feeling the pressure of getting my shit together and, and I got really serious about it. So I, I committed to the ayahuasca path and, and, um, you know, six months later I was down in Peru doing a dieta for a month at a, at a center down there, the original center I had intended to go to, which is no longer operating. Um, can we then, explain, can we just pause for one second, explain sure. for everybody that, cause I've might've brushed over dieta in the past but not gone into detail. Can you just explain what is a dieta to people that are just learning about this? Sure. So the dieta is a traditional practice used by the, you know, the indigenous in the Amazon to really get to know a plant. Mm. So the idea is the get to know the spirit of the plant rather, uh, and be, and kind of become one with the plant and take on that plant's energy. So in order to do that, what you need to do is spend a prolonged amount of time uh, ranging from, you know, a couple of weeks to several months to a year or more Mm. um, where you're basically consuming very, very basic food, like just kind of enough to sustain you white rice, uh, boiled potatoes or boiled plantains the occasional uh, fish cooked over like just a fire, no salt, no sugar, no seasoning, um, you know, chicken or boiled eggs, boiled chicken or boiled eggs. Um, And then you're on top of that, you are consuming a plant or a combination of plants. So like, uh, you know, there's just, there's a whole pharmacopoeia of plants in the Amazon that, that uh, indigenous um, healers or just people that have a condition will diet where sometimes the, the dietas are used. Dieta means diet in Spanish, right? The, you know, the, the healers will diet with the plants to take on the spirit of the plant and be able to work with that, that plant spirit in the ceremony. Hmm. But then also um, patients will diet with a plant to work on a specific condition that they have. So the healers might, 
assign a plant to a patient and, um, and, uh, you know, then, and then that, that the different plants have different functions. So, mm. I mean, I just, I just dieted with ayahuasca and San Pedro. So I went down to Peru, dieted with ayahuasca and San Pedro. Um, and then, so just got a little bit deeper into the medicine, started to open myself up more, started to get more creativity flowing through me. I started blogging on that. So started writing, getting more involved in producing content on the internet on a very basic level, but producing nonetheless. Um, and then you know, six months after that, I, I was in Brazil, you know, for a few months working with the Santo Diamond, the Uniado Vegetal. I tried to build my first center in Brazil, which I failed um, ultimately because, uh, you know, I went down there. I had all these ideas that I got in Peru, but I went down to Brazil to build this idea, this concept out of a center that was in 2011. And um, I failed basically because uh, one, I, I, I wasn't qualified. I still hadn't been able to prove that I could follow through on anything in terms of an educational level. Mm. Um, two, uh, I didn't have any business management history or experience. And three, I didn't have any money. So I didn't have any skin in the game, right? I couldn't put any skin in the game. I was teaching English and stuff. So like, um, so I, re I recognized those reasons why that project wasn't going to work. And I went back to Canada and uh, I spent, you know, basically I, I started my first uh, company pulse tours at the end of 2011. So just very basic running small group tours, like I was doing for G adventures back in the day, except the idea was adventure and ayahuasca. So it was like an international travel adventure, the style, like I used to do for G adventures but the objective is to go to an ayahuasca center and drink ayahuasca. Mm. So that's when I started uh, working with the Shipibo tradition, going to a Shipibo center um, before I had my own center. And, um, and then, so I started kind of building that business and bootstrapping it. I learned more about WordPress, you know, started building and, and writing content for my own website. You know, I started running budgets and, and, and planning itineraries and, you know, doing all the email communications, I came up with a brand name, I got a PayPal account, stuff like that, you know, just as an independent entrepreneur, um, and started getting a little experience with that, picking up reviews from clients, you know, first leveraging my network, and then kind of growing that outward. Um, and so that was, that was kind of growing my, my business management experience, um, and also putting some skin in the game. And then at the same time, I moved to Vancouver and because I had kind of all this worldly experience, I was able to get into a master's degree and I had that education experience that I told you about that year that I did mm. where I, I applied myself and got pretty good marks in post-secondary level. Um, I was, I was accepted into a master's program for intercultural and international communication, which is two years um, blended curriculum. So designed for people who are also working full time. So then I also got a full-time sales job, spent the next two years doing those three things, working a full-time sales job, doing a master's degree after hours and, um, and building my first uh, company and bootstrapping that and um, running like maybe, you know, a couple of trips a year, just small group tours down to Peru and Colombia and Ecuador to, uh, to take groups of people to different centers and make like an awesome kind of, intercultural adventure to go along with it. 
Um, and then in 2014, I graduated that master's degree. I had some cash flow because um, I was, you know, I was, I was getting customers. I was getting bookings for my uh, business. And I also could prove some traction and prove that there was a market and, and proof of concept. Um, and so, you know, all those things combined, um, that would allow me to inspire my dad to invest, to, to, bore, to lend me a small loan of $20,000. So that $20,000 combined with revenues that I had coming in from bookings um, from Pulse Tours allowed me to build my first center in Peru. Mm. So it was a very, you know, inexpensive center made out of like, you know, wood from the jungle and run by, you know, villagers from a neighboring jung uh, jungle village. Mm. And, um, you know, more like a jungle lodge with ayahuasca uh, retreats at it. And so it was like we built it in like this super jungly hotspot where I had been taking people earlier for jungle adventures um, but now we could just do the jungle adventure during the day and do the ceremonies at night and have like a week long retreat um, three times a month. So then I built that center. I ran that. It became one of the top rated centers in Peru, dominated the, the AYA advisor website, it's, which still does to this date, but now it's under a different uh, owner and different name. Um, so I ran that for three years and because of that success and because those, those different things that I mentioned earlier, you know, I got more business management experience, got scaling experience, uh, more proof of concept, um, more cash flow. I was able to sell that and then come up and build Soltara, which was, you know, like uh, a, a, a scale up from that, you know, millions of dollars uh, of investment in the project. So I had to raise a bunch of money. And because I had up my game in all those different areas, I was able to get, you know, about, uh, money from about 15 different investors or 16 different investors. Some of, a lot of them have been customers from my operation in Peru who liked what we did down there and believed in, in our team for building what we have here. And, a and, you know, about half of them were like my dad and like, you know, his friends and, you know, my uncles who thought I was fucking crazy back in 2011, but had seen my progress ramp up over the years. And we're now like, yeah, we, we've, you know, he's done it before he can do it again. So um, I generated a lot of confidence and here we are, man, you know, we built, we built Soltara 27. We started 2017. We opened in 2018 very quickly got up to kind of full capacity and optimal pricing. Um, and it's basically as soon as we did that COVID hit shut us down for seven months. Um, but you know, we, we, we kept it together and we survived that brutal assault. And um, now we're, you know, we're back up and running. We're back up to like, you know, full bookings, uh, great pricing and, you know, lots of, uh, you know, a great community around us the right people talking about us. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, as you decide, as you, as you mentioned, a highly effective program, that's really changing people's lives, you know? Yeah. And your guys' safety protocol for everything has just been phenomenal. You know, it's been, it's been great. And it's, yeah, just get the whole process, man. You guys have done a great job. My question for you is around 
retreat centers from what you've seen in, you know, a lot of people, once they discover the power of this medicine, everybody wants to build one, everybody wants yeah. to get involved. Right. And which is great at, in one side, but on the other side, there's a lot of bad ways to do it also. So my question for you is like, what makes, what makes a great retreat center versus one that isn't like, that's a poor retreat center. Like, what can you think of that Saltara has versus ones that you've seen other places? Well, I think the first word that comes to mind is experience mm. because it takes a long time to get the experience you need to effectively do this work, man. It takes mm. a long time. And there are very few people out there who have this experience. Mm. Um, you know, fortunately, we've, we've managed to bring in um, a, a very strong team that has worked at some of the centers that no longer exist right now. You know, and it's a brutal field, man. Like out of, I'll put it this way. Um, all of the previous centers that I worked with are either having significant problems right now or no longer exist. The first center I went to, guy died, shaman tried to bury the body and cover him up. Now he's in jail and the center's closed. The next one... The, the business partners couldn't get along. So the, the you know, the, the American guy and the, and the Canadian woman just wanted out. They got out and uh, you know, the, the Peruvian guy who was managing it, manages it poorly. He's, he's spending money stupidly and like, it's just not the same. And, you know, so, so that's kind of, it's just not as good as it once was. Um, Two of the other major ones that I won't mention by name, um, where where some of our our, our, our most qualified staff come from, um, you know, one is just it's it's non-existent. It, it, it's been a, a year or two in chaos, and then um, you know went down and is non-existent. Another one, just so many people have lost confidence in it in the management style and the healers don't want to work there anymore. They feel it's like there's so much dark energy there. And then all the staff wants to leave there because it's a whole bunch of drama and, you know, control dynamics and stuff like that. So everybody's leaving there. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a very delicate balance. It's, it's, it's like walking on eggshells all the time and you really have to, um, you have to manage it well, man. And, and you have to be engaged. It's not something, uh, one of the problems is that when, you know, people start, foreigners start managing a place like this and then they, you know, they're, they're enamored with the medicine and they're enamored with the lifestyle living in the Amazon and all this stuff, they believe in it and they go down and they, they start to run it. Um, and then kind of it seems like one of two things happens is they get tired of living there. So they try to go away from the operation and put other people in charge. And then it, mm -hmm. it just starts to slowly, you know, disintegrate or there's corruption um, or they seem to get like an inflated sense of ego and, and want to control everything and, and like 
you know, be, be a dominating kind of boss. And, um, I mean, and then, and then mistakes happen because of that, you know, there's, there's, you know, whatever corruption as well. So, so that's kind of what I've seen. Um, and in order to keep a place going for the long term, really need to run it with integrity. Um, you, you can't fuck around on any of the protocols that you, you know, yeah, not dating passengers, you're not, you know, you got to watch the power dynamics amongst the team. You don't want to be a dominating authoritative boss because you, because you know, the people in the medicine work, their most important thing is to do the medicine work and have a light energy and a clean energy um, mm. in the place. You have to pay your people really well because they're rare yeah. And, um, you, if you want to keep them, you got to treat them very well, make them, you know, I give them as much autonomy as I possibly can, mm. um, and equity where I can. Um, yeah. And, and in order to do good work, like all those safety protocols and stuff like that, I mean, it's a very expensive operation to run as well. For sure. Very detailed. It's very involved. So, you know, if, if there's a place that's not doing well in terms of bookings uh, or they're trying to price things too low, they probably don't have the protocols that will result in sustainability because something will eventually happen. Mm. And in a place like Costa Rica, the government is, is aware of what we're doing. You know, um, contrary to Peru, ayahuasca is not a national patrimony here. So it's not explicitly in legally bound in the constitution to remain legal forever. Mm. Um, it's just not illegal. It's not, it's not regulated here mm. and the, they're not planning to regulate it anytime soon, but they are watching us. And they do say that if you're going to keep your operating license, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And one of those things is, you need to have a Costa Rican physician on site. You need to have a clinic on site. You need to, you need him to sign off on people before and after the retreat. Um, in addition yeah. to that, you know, we have, uh, we have, a you know, medical intake uh, questionnaire, which, which asks for psychological conditions and medical conditions and medication and stuff like that. And also, uh, you know, a waiver, which doubles down, Mm. on those things and, and ask you to sign off individually each of those things, you know, which we actually have to make, make more and in, more intense because, you know, sometimes people can even slip through the cracks there. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, uh, you know, which we, we just, the, the idea to avoid any incidents is like, is basically impossible, but what the government cares about here is, you have, it's a very bureaucratic country. And what they care about is, do you have everything in a paper document somewhere, protocols, procedures? Have you thought of every possible scenario? And do you have plans for things? So, mm. you know, to run it well, um, you know, there's just, there's so many people who come and drink medicine and, and have a life-changing experience, which is awesome. And they want to build a place, which is awesome. 
I would just caution them to make sure they get in-depth experience and make sure not only you have ayahuasca experience that you've seen all the crazy shit that can happen in these retreats, you know, over a, a time period of years, spend time in the Amazon, live in the jungle, diet with the healers, make sure you know where the medicine's coming from. And also make sure you've been through the school of hard knocks in terms of business as well. Yeah. You know, and make sure you can check your ego. In fact, I mean, I literally just wrote a book about all this, uh, which will be coming out soon, um, called the 12 laws of the jungle. It's awesome. And it's, it's basically it, the, the subtitle is uh, become a lethal entrepreneur. So it's like, you know, basically kind of, outlining every of the major lessons that I've learned about entrepreneurship from my experience in this very difficult world of entrepreneurship, Mm. right? Through the school of hard knocks, um, 12 chapters, 12 laws. Each law is a, you know, like a principle of entrepreneurship basically that has stories from me personally or examples from the outside world. Um, uh, yeah. So anyways, that'll be coming out soon, but yeah, I mean, I really believe that entrepreneurship can be a, a force for good in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the, the, the need for healing centers and psychedelic clinics that are kind of popping up around the U S and in Canada now, maybe, I don't know if, you know, Peyton Nyquist, but, uh, um, you know, he's, he's running this company called Numinous and they're, launching these clinics all around Canada. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. There's got to be some kind of filter on integrity, some kind of filter on experience and some kind of filter on competence, I think, or else you're just going to get a whole bunch of real messy failures and incidents that could possibly harm people. Yeah. And you know, that's the thing is as it gains popularity, it takes one or two people to fuck it up. And then it'd be everywhere and then cause the good, you know, the struggles for the people that are doing it right to have to go and, you know, jump through all these different hurdles that they wouldn't have had to before. That's kind of what happens with, as anything good gains popularity, people start to take shortcuts yeah. in, in all the whole process. And then it gets looked at through the media as in like, well, everything's like that. And it's just not true. It's because one person decided to be lazy and make a mistake or whatever that may be in, and as, as the popularity grows, that's just the way it's going to be. And it's unfortunate. Yeah. Or like in the case of Iquitos, Peru. So like, so I used to live in Iquitos, right. Where all the, all the centers used to be, there's not a whole lot going on there now because of, of COVID and the travel restrictions and stuff like that. But what happened in Iquitos was as ayahuasca started to boom, you know, in 2010 to 2015, let's say, and Joe Rogan started talking about it and Aubrey started talking about it. You had an explosion of centers in Peru. And as I explained earlier, it doesn't take a whole lot of money to set up, to build a center in Peru, in Iquitos. The property's cheap. You can probably find a guy who's got a, a few acres of property, who's a shaman or calls himself a shaman. And you can put 20 or 50 grand into building a maloca and away you go, you're off to the races, give yourself a brand, buy yourself a website and start to sell retreats. So what you ended up with there was a a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. 
Mm. And then, you know, as you got as saturation increased, you had a race to the bottom in terms of pricing because everybody was basically the same style, but doing the same thing. But what, what happens in that, in that case is people have to start cutting corners out of necessity and you can't cut corners in Costa Rica or else you'll get shut down. Um, and also the fact that everything needs to be so much more legitimate in Costa Rica. Like, I mean, I didn't register a business in Peru. You know, we received cash on site and ran things just, you know, paid people in cash and like, like, we had nobody come and check on us. We had no tax man come to talk to us. We had no, mm. you know, medical authority come to talk to us. But here, I mean, everything's still by the book. We have lawyers for everything. We have accounts. Anytime we send a deposit into the bank, you know, they ask us for source of funds, origin of funds from Canada. You know, they want to see our tax returns from Canada. Mm. It's like, it's just so heavily monitored here. Um, Awesome. That if you have any kind of exposure on the internet, if you gain a brand and you have and you gain popularity, they're going to find you. And if you're doing things in a shady way, they're going to be breathing down your neck real fast and real hard, you know, and even yeah. just us getting started here. It's like I anticipated it would be somewhat similar to Peru that we just be able to like, you know, build stuff and like, Nope. They, they, they came down on us real hard and I had to, you know, spend probably a year. And I was so surprised by how much bureaucracy is required here. This agency, that agency, this document, that document, this permit, that permit, mm. they, this inspection, that inspection. I mean, you're just, you're not doing anything without the government's approval here. Mm. and you know so that's another i just found it so confusing and shocking i'm like how the fuck does anybody get anything done in this country Mm. um you know so until i really had competent local guys who knew the system here i was just like super stressed and struggling anytime i'd send a deposit in Mm. it's like dude how do i how do i build anything here if i can't send money into the country how do I pay people salaries if I can't send money into the country? Like I've got yeah. 20 people waiting for their payday and the bank's telling me that, you know, they're closing my accounts because I didn't send a origin of funds document or whatever. They just, they wow. just assume everybody's involved in drug trafficking here, even mm. more so when you're involved in ayahuasca. Mm. So, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a money laundering hotspot. They've come down really hard on, on companies and on banks yeah. So yeah, I mean, Costa Rica does provide one of those filters just because of the yeah. bureaucracy and, and the monitoring of everything that goes on here. Well, yeah. for those for those listening though, like that's great for the person that wants to come here because they know that all the shit is done properly. Right? Like that's why it's great for all you guys listening that are thinking about doing this. Like you want to go somewhere that you know you have to go through that stuff, man. Because the more you have to do on your end, the safer and better it's going to be for anybody that wants to come out here. And that's almost what people need is that reassurance. So it's so great that you went into that because, I mean, that's why this place is so great, Costa Rica, is because it's a pain in the ass 
but at the same time, it's set up perfectly for the people coming to experience. It's very it. convenient. Yeah, it's very yeah. convenient. At the same time, it costs more than Peru. That's just a fact. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it, our expenses are way higher here than they were in Peru, yeah. and we have to do way more things. You know, and, and Costa Rica in general is just more expensive, so we also have to pay people more here. Yeah, you sure. know, everything's just more expensive. But again, you're getting what you pay for. Totally. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's still, you know, pretty good value. We basically, we basically broke out our pricing structure in two parts. One part is the hotel itself. So then we just basically charge what other hotels in the area charge for similar lodgings. Like mm. we have different tiers of lodgings, yeah. you know, different capacities, different types of rooms, different sizes, different luxury profiles. And we just charge what market value is for the hotel. Yeah. And then, um, you know, all the additional services that you don't normally get with a hotel, the professional services, the medicine, the food, the transport, you know, all that stuff. And then we, we, we charge a price for that as well. We put it together, but we break it out so people know what they're paying for, basically. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. There's one thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap it up here, brother, is like, so... You've, you've done this in Peru. You've done it in Colombia as well, ayahuasca. and or I haven't done ayahuasca in Colombia. Oh. I used to run tours through Colombia. Oh, okay. like we go to Bogota and go down into the Amazon and cut into Peru. Okay. My, my question for you is your, your choice and what you offer at Soltara is Shipibo. Yeah. Now, can you just give somebody who's wondering like, what does Shipibo mean? Cause I've talked about it and you mentioned it just so people understand and maybe just give them a quick insight. Like why Shipibo versus like, what's the other, what are the other options? And maybe like why you decided to choose that one. The first neo shamanistic, it's kind of a collection of people, people playing some instruments, sitting around drinking in the dark, laying on a mat, everybody, they were singing in Spanish. They were singing in English uh you know small group of people 20 people or something i think 13 people there and then with the chavin it was very different the 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 shaman conducted a ceremony in a ceremonial hut but it was early in the after it was at five five o'clock in the afternoon he would sing for about an hour or 45 minutes channeling the spirits bringing the spirits and then at that point, he would serve you your medicine. So whether that was San Pedro or ayahuasca, he would fill your coffee cup full of medicine. And then everybody would disperse and go and sit in a tambo alone by themselves and drink the medicine by themselves and undergo the whole ceremony alone in their tambo um, with no facilitators or anything like that. And then um, the, the Santo Daime, when I, I went to Brazil... The Santo Daime tradition, very different. About, you know, 80 people or 50 people in a well-lit room, uh, more of like a social group, well-lit room. Everybody's dressed up in white. The boys stand on one side. The girls stand on another. They have choreographed dances. They have a hymn book with uh, Christian songs that are in Portuguese and they play music and they all sing hymns and they encourage everybody to sing and dance. So it's very, very weird for somebody who's like accustomed to laying alone in the dark. And then the, the Unialba Vegetal or the UDV, 
which I worked with after the Santo Daime in Brazil was, uh, was also a little bit different, still a large gathering in a, in a fairly well-lit room, 50 or 80 people in, in, the, in the social group. They drink you know, one ceremony on the weekend or two ceremonies on the weekend. And they get together and they would eat beforehand as a group and then drink the medicine and do the ceremony. They didn't require singing and dancing from the participants, but they did have like a, a table of elders who would sing and dance, like people who had been in the group for, the, for a long time. There was somewhat of a hierarchy there. Um, and I, I preferred that when I lived in Brazil because it was more chill. I could just sit down in a chair and, and experience the, the medicine. And then after that, I went to drink with the Shipibo. And um, what I liked about the Shipibo that it was more similar to the first time I drank medicine, being that it was in a dark room, I could lay down by myself, I could have my mat. And, um, you know, no one would really bother me. It was very introspective journey. And I also was super impressed by the Shipibo singing. So the Shipibo don't play instruments, they sing. They sing in their native language. And there's usually multiple Shipibo healers in a, in a ceremony. They don't call themselves shamans, really. Some of them do. Uh, our healers don't. They call themselves healers or maestros or uh, curanderos, which means healer in Spanish. And, um, yeah, they sing. They chant all night. They, they work with energy. So they use the, the, you know, the vibration of their sound to, to push out the, the negative energies in the room. So they kind of clear out this space inside the maloca. And in general, that's how they open the ceremony. And then uh, they go around, you know, some in different formats sometimes. But the idea is each individual person is receiving their ikaros. So you'll be in front of the healer. The healer is just unloading this, just chant this ikaro onto you, which is in their native language. And it's got all these different kind of musical notes and levels. And it's like, I just found that to be just fucking mind blowing every time. <laughs> so I just, once I started drinking with the Shipibo, I just had no interest in drinking with any other mm. tradition. So, you know, every trip I did down to, to Peru in the beginning, I would take people to this Shipibo center. Um, and I, I made a relationship with one of the guys there and one of the healers who I really resonated with and really liked. And then when I built my own center, conveniently, he was let go from that center. So he was looking for work and uh, he came to work for me in Peru. So then, you know, as that whole time in Peru, just constantly working with the Shipibo, learning their ways, it just became ingrained. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, we just carried it up here. So. Yeah. Dude. So good. Thank you so much for sharing that, man. I, I really, I wanted to cover all those areas because I think it's so important for anybody that is, because they've heard me talk about it. There's a lot of beginners, but they've, you know, I'm still a beginner, you know, I'm still new to this. I've only sat with it four times, um, one retreat. So there's a lot of people that have a lot of questions and I think, you know, what you guys do is amazing. And I think you did a really great job at sort of explaining the different levels because those are the things that I'd be curious about too. And, you know, the Shipibo itself, you know, to end with this is like, it was such a beautiful experience and really difficult at times to work through that sound. And I'd, I'd be like, stop, like in my mind, I'm like, but 
you know, like that's the beautiful thing. It's like this like beautiful dark chaos in your mind that you got to fight through. And it's just so the way they are able to do that and, and the way that it just, I have such a deep understanding now of why, why you choose them and how important that is. So um, yeah, dude, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, dude, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to keep in touch, man. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Um, I'm glad we could uh, make it work and, you know, thank you for, for coming down to Soltara for, you know, bringing your energy and your resources down with you and for, you know, talking about us on your channel and stuff like that. I mean, it's very much helpful and um, yeah, man, um, enjoy your trip in Costa Rica and yeah, keep in touch for sure. Thank you, brother. Where can everybody check you out? I know that your podcast, Daniel Cleland show, where else yeah. is good social media, all that stuff. But, yeah. So, uh, so I mean, my, my, my podcast, I got a couple documentaries and my books are on uh, danielcleland.com. Cool. Um, and, um, you know, I'm on uh, Instagram at Daniel C. Cleland. I think Facebook's the same, Daniel C. Cleland. Um, I think LinkedIn and social media, Daniel C. Cleland. And, uh, yeah, I mean, got the, got the podcast on YouTube, the Daniel Cleland podcast. Pretty simple. Cool. Uh, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, all that good stuff. So, awesome, yeah, man. man. Cool. Also, uh, yeah, happy to uh, communicate with anyone out there who, you know, has any further questions or whatever. I got a contact form, my website, or I'm on social. Um, so, yeah, man. Awesome. Spreading the word. Thanks, everybody. Please hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening. If you haven't already, if you got value from this, please leave us a review on Apple. It really helps and is really appreciated. Also, go check out Dan's podcast, The Dan Cleland Show. He's got some great guests happening and continues to just bring the heat. Dan's doing very important work and his team is just amazing. So definitely follow Soltara on Instagram if you haven't already and get curious about this stuff. Again, I'm not... I'm not saying this stuff is for everybody, but if it is, this is a great place to do it. So I love you guys. We'll catch you next time.